Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. And every week, I bring you conversations and stories from great music teachers from around the state of Georgia. Today, I am excited to introduce to you Ho Mai, someone many of you might know because he serves as our VP of Auditions and has done a spectacular job in this role for us. I am delighted for this opportunity to get to know him better. So without further delay, hello, Ho. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's get started with just a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. So I teach piano, voice, and violin and composition. I also conduct. I work with the Atlanta Boy Choir. I teach at Kennesaw State University, and I serve as music director for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. I also maintain a private studio as well. Tell me about how you got here. What was the beginning of your musical journey like? So like everyone else, I was enrolled in music lessons. I started at age seven, started in piano lessons. My mom asked me if I was interested in learning the piano, and I said, sure. Of course, I had a very, very small toy keyboard, and it would kind of pluck out melodies on it and uh, started piano. After a couple of years, I got a little bit more interested in it. When I got into middle school, um, I started violin lessons, actually and started playing in the school orchestra. And into high school, I I also did some work with the chorus as well. And by the time I graduated high school, I was was hooked. I was um, actually torn between training as uh, to be a violinist and a pianist, and eventually chose piano to focus on during college and began teaching actually when I was in college as well. The rest is kind of history. Yeah, so it's fascinating because you do have such a wide range of talents. It sounds like you work with choirs, you obviously play the piano, and um, you teach on the violin. How did you, as a young musician, find that balance in terms of the demands? Obviously, these are very demanding instruments that require lots of dedication and hours of practice. How were you able to find that balance? So that was very challenging in high school. I would practice two hours of piano and two hours of violin back to back. And for me, I prioritized it over schoolwork. So I would do my practice first, right when I got home from school, and then I would do my homework assignments and such. So for me, music was always very important. So I I kind of put that always as my priority just to make sure I got my four hours of practice in every day and uh, weekends, you know, I could do a little bit more. But I think it's just a matter of prioritization. I didn't take as many AP courses as some of my peers. I did participate in extracurricular activities, but again, I just, it was all, there was never a question. I would, I, when, once I got home from school, I was going to get the practice in. Yeah, and it seems like even now as a professional musician, you are someone that wears many hats and that juggles many things on your schedule. How do you find that balance as a professional? So I think the study of piano really helped me with that. It's, it comes down to efficient learning, efficient scheduling. I think a lot of professional musicians learn to learn music very quickly because we don't have the luxury of time. I don't have the luxury of time that I used to, to practice six hours a day. So 
Um, you find ways to learn music very, very quickly. And it's applicable to other areas of your life. So I'm, you know, I'm always working on projects through the day. It is challenging at times, but I've grown quite accustomed to it. And I enjoy the challenge of having a very, very busy day. Yeah, you you hinted at it earlier um, when you were talking about your development as a young musician that you were hooked into music quite early on. Do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a child got you hooked on music? For me, actually, it was orchestral music. Uh, when I, I would, used to listen to these cassette tapes back before CDs existed, I remember Actually, the first piece I kind of fell in love with with a child was actually uh, Pachelbel's Canon in D, which, of course, as a professional musician, you know, we, we hear way too much. But as a five-year-old, six-year-old child, I, I thought it was beautiful. I loved it. I listened to the um, Eine Kleine Nachtmusik by Mozart, as well as his 40th Symphony, songs from Swan Lake, the, the Pulvitzian Dances by um, just a lot of different composers and that was always a big part in, in piano. It was the Beethoven sonatas initially. I remember purchasing the CDs. I saved up all my money in middle school from mowing lawns. And um, back in that day, we didn't have MP3s. We didn't have MP3 players. We didn't have the internet. And I went to a CD store and I looked at the albums and you couldn't even hear them, right? So you just took a guess. I, I picked an album. It was $60. I remember that. Uh, the full collection of the 32 Beethoven Sonatas. Bought it. And I think that was actually the first CDs I bought, purchased for myself. And I just listened to them over and over and over again. And because that's all I had. I didn't have this plethora of choices. I had a friend who had a collection of over 100 CDs. And I was always so you know, jealous that his parents could afford that. But for me, it was just a, a handful of CDs that I just would play over and over and over again. You said at the very beginning that your mother was the one that asked you whether or not you wanted to take lessons. Did she have an interest in music? Like was music around in the home or was it just something that her friends were doing? And so she thought she would ask you whether or not you wanted to do it. Well, this was the eighties. I think, think times were different. And my, my mother had always wanted to know how to play the piano. So I think this was born much more of a regret for herself that she would have loved to have learned, I believe was the real source of the question. There wasn't much music in our household, but she did have uh, one classical cassette tape hmm. that had kind of an assortment of, of music on it. Yeah, yeah. What are your goals for your students and for yourself? So. That's a great question. Each student is obviously very different, especially in today's environment. The goals kind of change. And um, primarily, I, I really want to understand my students as much as I can, both artistically and also personally, so that I can sort of guide them in a direction where what they learn from their lessons with me will be beneficial to them. And oftentimes, those turn into life lessons or practical, applicable ways they can apply what they learn in their lessons, whether it be time management, positivity, methods of learning into other areas of their lives. And sometimes it's, it's about helping them become more emotionally balanced 
people because we do live in a very challenging time, I think, for young people growing up. And I've only noticed, as I'm sure uh, my fellow colleagues have as well, that uh, the pressures and the dynamic challenges are just very complex now for young people. What about goals for yourself? Do you have any goals for yourself as a teacher? Yeah, I'm always trying to improve. I, I find every few years I kind of hit another place where I think, well, you know, now I'm really happy with how I'm teaching. And then a few years later, I, find, I discover I'm always changing. So I, I always adapt, whether it be the materials I use or just my methodology. It's evolved over the years. And lately, my goals have been to really be at peace. You know, sometimes I think it's easy as, as teachers, caring teachers, to have placed a lot of pressure on ourselves in terms of uh, results with students and, and this and that. And I think just enjoying the moment because it is pretty special. I just attended a wedding for one of my longtime students. He studied with me for 17 years and was getting married in Asheville and it was beautiful. And there's just something very rewarding about seeing the larger arc. It's a really privileged position to be in, to be a music educator. Yeah, to be involved in a student's life for long term, not just, you know, even in school, most public school teachers or even just your typical school, they're really only involved in the child's life for one year. But for us, we get to really follow their life trajectory and their life journey. Yeah, exactly. What would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in a student? That is a fantastic question. It's one I hear a lot, not just from parents, but also from fellow teachers. And it's, it's one that's very interesting. My view continues to evolve on this topic. Talent, it, there is a talent, uh, uh, you know, a component of talent, but my definition of talent has also changed where talent to me now is really an individual's natural ability to appreciate something. So for example, if someone wants to become a world-class chef, well, they have to be able to smell and taste nuances, the differences. They need to be able to identify when they're tasting something that is amazing. And the same with music. If a student struggles to hear nuance or struggles to hear the difference between what would be a world-class performance and something that is just good, then it means that they, they can't actually replicate that result because they, they cannot even hear it, observe it. So uh, that's one component of talent, which is just the sensitivity, the awareness. It can be developed, of course. And I think that's one of the best ways to build that quote unquote talent is to listen to a lot of music, is to expose oneself to great art. The second component of talent is speed of learning. And it's related to IQ and learning, essentially, I have found to be pattern recognition. So it comes down to how quickly can people identify patterns. Now, this is a skill that can also be developed and should be developed. Um, so because both of these, quote unquote, talents can be developed, it's sort of loaded a little bit. But, you know, as teachers, we, we notice everyone's different. People have more physical ability than others and coming with just a little bit more sensitivity than others. So talent is a big component. And then the work ethic really 
is without that, you, you don't have anything. So you can take someone with very little talent and a whole lot of discipline, which is also as trainable, and you can come up with a result where someone can work professionally. I actually have quite a few, I know quite a few people who work professionally in the field of music who never considered themselves talented and, and achieved what they've achieved through hard work alone. So I would say that between the two, the discipline is more important, but to reach the highest echelons of performance in our field, uh, it's, I, th I think one needs the talent as well. Yeah, I think what I find fascinating about your answer is you, you recognize that there is a talent component, but you also recognize that it's something that can be developed. And so it makes me realize frequently when we when I ask this question, I think that it's a juxtaposition between talent and work ethic. But actually, there's a third component, which is where teachers come in, actually. Great teaching can help nurture and develop talent at a, a slow speed or a fast speed, depending on the teaching, um, the pedagogy of the teacher, you know, so that's great for, for me to realize and for our listeners to realize as well. Our job as teacher is critical. Right. I would say, especially at the collegiate level where students are training to become professional musicians or professional teachers, one of the primary things that I find myself really encouraging students is to listen to music. It's, it's very interesting that in this day and age, students do not listen to as much music. And I think part of the reason for this is because the scarcity doesn't exist anymore. So when we were younger, it was harder to find recordings. So when we found a recording, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to listen to this. I mean, I guess television is the same way. You know, there, before you had on-demand programming, you just watch whatever was on there, right? It was programmed for that hour. And now you can just access almost everything just very, very quickly, very easily. And it is very interesting that so many incoming students that I, I find do not have much experience listening. So that's something that actually uh, I like to do is we, we listen to the entirety of the Chopin Nocturnes or the entirety of the Beethoven symphonies um, over the course of a month or so. And we, we get to discuss them and, and talk about them and kind of experience them. Yeah, I mean, even earlier in the conversation, you were talking about mowing lawns and making money so that you can go out and buy a CD and you remember it costing you $60. I mean, $60 nowadays is significant, but $60 back then was a lot of time and labor invested in, to, in order to accumulate that much money. I, re, I remember, you know, the, the cost of CDs easily was $20, $30. And so we'll listen to the same CD over and over and it would it would get slight scratches and then it would just like jump over certain sections. And nowadays we can listen to great recordings essentially for free. You know, we have to watch some YouTube ads, but then we have it at our fingertips and we don't have to pay any money for it. So I do think that there is something that we treasure when we have to pay the cost of uh, an item in order to access it. Right. What advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? How can they encourage and help them to succeed? What role do parents play in a child's musical development? So this is a very important topic. And we know as teachers that there's really kind of a, a, a trinity, like a triangle, three points of support that is necessary for 
a truly successful student. That is, of course, the teacher, the parent, and the student. And parents ultimately are the most important teachers in a student's life while they're children. So this is a component that I think most parents understand to some degree, but our society doesn't really address very much yet. So parents don't have, most parents don't have training in education, for example. The first thing to understand, I think, for parents is that you are the primary educator for the child. That responsibility may be shared with other educators, of course, um, but, but you serve that role. So there's uh, one of the common things that I hear and have heard in recent years and even the last couple of decades uh, is that parents will say, I just want my child to have fun, to have a happy childhood and this and that. But the fact of the matter is that um, children, their primary time of growth and learning is when they're children. I mean, for all of us, if we ask ourselves about our own current skill sets, how many adults develop high level skill sets as adults? And it's, it's just very difficult to do. You know, like for me, I, I started tennis when I was after college and I've been playing for years. I've been training a lot, but um, it's just, I, I, you know, there's a difference in level compared to someone who just played some as a child. And it's because of how quickly they learn how pivotal those years are. So that's one component is to recognize the opportunity is, is huge for, for learning and growth. So exposure is what the answer to that is, is guided exposure. Another thing that I hear a lot is that parents will say, well, you know, my child isn't interested in this subject. They're not interested in that subject. Well, I have found that every subject is interesting to everyone so long as you get beyond the surface level. And I think the reason for this is because the human brain is wired to learn. And learning is, as I mentioned earlier, pattern recognition at its core. And every discipline, regardless of what it is, is loaded with patterns and depth to experience and to learn. So I have found that even students who have been initially not interested in certain subjects, including music, typically with additional exposure and a deeper understanding, find appreciation. It doesn't mean that they find a deep passion for it, but certainly an interest at minimum. So that's a component as well. Another piece of advice for parents is that you are not just their parent and educator, you are also their manager. So children need parents because as children, we, our brains have not fully developed. We've not physically fully developed. We've not acclimated to society fully to take care of ourselves. And a large component of that is, is just plain scheduling managing our day-to-day -day tasks and such. So I, I feel very strongly that parents who are able to just manage their child's time uh, effectively, you know, and kind of guide them through that process uh, will help them develop the foundation to be able to organize their time and accomplish a lot of tasks. Yeah, I'm curious to know, I appreciate your observations. Are these observations that you came to um, as a teacher or is it something that you experienced personally as a child? Is that something that your, your mother uh, instilled in you or your father, or your family in general? 
I gained these as a teacher, as an educator. I, I didn't have parents that were involved in, in some of the ways that I'm describing, but I have seen parents who've done it effectively. I think we all have. And I've seen the benefits of it. And um, I've also seen the benefits of helping students to develop some of these. I, I think a lot of times as teachers, we have the opportunity to fill some of the, the gaps that we may perceive in a child's adult interactions. So for example, you know, scheduling is a big one. I, I think a lot of us end up helping students schedule their lives. And sometimes I'll, I'll just, you know, a student will come in and say, hey, I just didn't have time to practice. They'll, they'll look stressed out and they'll say, hey, what's your schedule like? Would you like to go over it? And actually sit down and plan out their days and write it out and just say, hey, let's get this homework done here. Let's do this here. You can practice in this slot. You need some time for yourself. When are you playing? When are you having fun? Helping them to find that kind of balance. Children are, you know, very, they're, they're human beings just like we are. So that balance is really important. So just like for us, you know, um, finding balance in our days, what are we doing for ourselves? What are we looking forward to? We, we want to make sure that our children have things to look forward to as well. I think earlier you already hinted at this next question because you talked about playing tennis as a as an um, adult. But do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? I sure do. Too many, probably. So I I love learning. So cooking is probably well, it's it's right up there for me. Uh, cooking, tennis. I mentioned um, I've done a lot of other sports as well. I, I love hiking and traveling. The, the list is quite substantial, but I've just found, you know, it's, it's a way to experience life, every component of life. You know, we, we think of disciplines as different, but really, I don't know that they are. I, I find so many um, of the same ideas and themes within different areas that I've explored. So for example, in physics, we know that all things are made of atoms and all atoms are made out of electrons and protons and neutrons. And we know that those are made out of quartz and smaller particles. We know that everything follows the same universal laws of physics. And we know that, you know, all matter is really energy and, and vibration. Everything is resonance. So how, how different is everything really? It's, it's just, I think, a bit perspective and, and whatnot, but there's a lot of commonality in things. And I, I think that's what one of the benefits of going into the depth of a discipline any discipline is that you begin to find that that discipline carries so much that is applicable across one's life. That's beautifully articulated. Thank you for sharing that. What aspects of your life and career as a musician has surprised you? How does it measure up to the life you envisioned for yourself as a young musician? So I remember being pretty young and just imagining myself conducting orchestras or uh, performing as a soloist and touring and, and doing this and that and, and, and composing great works. And I thought that that was sort of my goal. And I, one of the biggest surprises for me was after doing, you know, the feeling I would get after a performance, like a big performance. I, there's a kind of a letdown sort of that you experience. I think we all know this as performing musicians especially, you know, a work that's really important to you. Maybe it's a concerto or, or a moment, you know, that you've been looking forward to. And then after that, it's, it's, there was kind of let down. And, and initially for me, 
I would fill that letdown by programming another concert. Well, I, I don't want to feel this, so I'm going to program something else. So that was one of the surprises. But a bigger surprise to me was, was that I, I got so much more joy from my students than I ever did from my performing. It was a bit unexpected. I knew I wanted to teach, but I, I didn't realize how substantial my students would change my life, how much I would learn from them. And so that has easily become far, far, far more important to me than performing on stage, in which now performances feel they're enjoyable, but they're, it doesn't have that same exact, it's really nice to have the moments where you give everything you have in a performance, but even that pales in comparison for me to the relationships that you build over years with students and those, those moments and seeing them grow and also being changed by them. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are or your theories are as to what causes the letdown, what, what results in the sensation of letdown after performances? Well, I'm not sure that everyone experiences it. Like, for example, do you experience that? No. So that's why I'm asking, like, is it, is it because the excitement of the performance is the anticipation of the performance and now that anticipation is gone or is it? Well, I don't experience it anymore to be clear, but I, I did earlier in my career for me, it was, it was because I think the idea of it was larger in my mind, or I think, I think part of it's that. And part of the other aspect is, you know, when I was performing concerti with orchestras and such, more so I, I put everything into it. Like every spare moment I was, I was working on it. So I was living it. So every moment I had, I was working on it. And so it'd be six to 12 hours sometimes a day in preparation for these. And I think after that performance, after that moment, you've spent so much time, so much of yourself invested that I used to experience that letdown. I don't think I experience it anymore because probably because for one, I'm, I'm not putting that much time, I think in that the kind of preparations I'm preparing much, much, much less for performances, partly because of time limitations. And then also partly because there's a sacrifice in that type of commitment. Okay. There's you sacrifice time with friends and family, for example. And I, I don't think that I am interested in making that trade-off as much mm-hmm. at this point in my life. Yeah. What do you see should be the future and role of classical music in society in the 21st century? So that's yet to be dis- determined. I think I like a lot of forms of music and I have experience with a lot of contemporary commercial music as well. And so I, there's a lot that I appreciate with all the, the just different genres that are evolving. And music itself is evolving always, as we know. So I would like to see music continue to be appreciated and enjoyed and experienced. I've definitely noticed that it has not been as much. More and more students are unfamiliar with particular works that may be well known to people in former generations. But I think this is... This is one of the normal challenges that exists as time goes on. I think that responsibility lies on our shoulders. I think it's easy as educators to say, wow, you know, classical music is, is a dying art or people are not hearing this music, but we are the ambassadors 
of our art. So that's why I think it's so important to expose students. I, I know um, one of the courses I, I teach at the university is Music Society, which is basically a music appreciation course to non-music majors. This last semester was the first semester I taught the course and it was a different experience. First time teaching non-music majors at the university setting was an eye-opener because you have a lot of students who just have zero exposure whatsoever. So I would take very meaningful pieces and go through it very slowly and explain the emotional context, what was happening in the story. And I found that to be much more helpful for um, the students to be able to connect with the music rather than it remaining kind of an abstract soundscape for them. Mm. So, what, was the, what was the feedback from the students like? Uh, are they excited about music now, classical music? Well, for some of the students, I mean, some of the classes, we actually ended up in tears. Well, one, I guess, because I was in tears from the music. And some of the students were very, very, very moved, kind of were making statements that, you know, this music was, was just tremendously profound. They'd never heard anything like it. But it wasn't, it wasn't anything special. Like, you know, for classic musicians, we, we know these works. They're very well known. But I think people just need help appreciating. It's, it's like if you were going to an art museum, you know, if I were going to an art museum, for example, I would have a little bit of a hard time appreciating some artists. And if I had someone who was deeply passionate, who could help guide me into what to appreciate, what to notice, I would, I'm sure, no doubt, I would have a much greater, deeper appreciation. So that's what I mean by us being guides and ambassadors of the art. Once people fall in love with the music, well, you know, then as far as I'm concerned, that's, you know, our job is complete there. Um, I think that follows really well with what you said earlier, that there is a common strand throughout all topics and all fields of study, and that we can all learn to appreciate every field of study um, and develop that interest because every field is special and interesting in its way. You know, helping students discover how interesting music is. It makes me think of you mentioned one of your hobbies is cooking. You know, I don't have a very refined palate. And so if you were to set really expensive food in front of me, someone would have to walk me through what is it that I am eating, how to appreciate it so that I can appreciate it for its full value. Exactly. Do you have do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? Yeah, so there's a lot to consider, both from a financial perspective to a continued education to just an overall life perspective. And I think number one is that there's this commonly seeded concept. I think almost all musicians I've run into have experienced this. And it can happen from teachers. It can, it, we can get it from friends, society, or parents. But this idea that you have to arrive at a certain place to succeed, like we have to have the degree or we have to you know, be successful, whatever that success means, or we need to reach a level of playing or performance or this sort of target that we, we had to reach in, in, in order to, to earn the right to feel successful or happy. And I think that number one, we should work to tear that idea down because that's not how life works. I remember a friend of mine, Max Trombley, he was a retired college professor, trombone, also played piano. And um, I knew him when he was in his late seventies and he couldn't play anymore. And he told me when he was 
that the time when he sold all of his instruments. And I just thought about that. And, you know, and he, he was so at peace selling all of his instruments he used for decades. And, and I was thinking at the time, man, I, I just I can't even imagine that. And honestly, I, it's very hard for me to imagine now too, but to be in that place and for him to be such at peace with the fact that he couldn't play anymore. And, but I, I remember his um, memorial service. I, I played for it and it was just beautiful. And he had so many students just from across generations mm. come and speak. And it was just amazing. The outpouring of love that from the effect that he had on so many lives, it's very clear. So point being is everything we have is, is a gift and it's temporary. So our abilities as musicians, these are very temporary. So because of that, you know, I, I think it's really important, one, not to think that being a better musician makes, makes you a better individual. It doesn't. And number two, vice versa, that just because you're not a, a masterful musician or a successful teacher doesn't make you any less of a musician less worthy. So I think that's, that's the big one because, well, I, I find artists in general put a lot of pressure on themselves because we care about our art. We have these high, super high targets we want to achieve. And the closer we get to them, the further they, it seems to be because we keep moving that, that measuring pole. So by letting that go, it allows us to enjoy the process more. And that's absolutely key, I think, whether it's performing or teaching. It's just to enjoy that process without that pressure of saying, I need to accomplish this or that, or my student needs to accomplish this or that. Just be there, experience it. That's the pivotal one. And from a learning perspective, same thing. You know, I mean, think we need to be inspired as human beings and as artists. So do things that inspire you, whether that's listening to music or going for a hike or exploring new cuisines or whatever it be. We, we put always put a little inspiration on your schedule. This very last question that I have to ask is very similar to the previous one, but slightly different tinged. What advice would you give to young pre-collegiate musicians about a life with music? So this is an interesting one because so many young people in our world, in our country, really don't know what they want to be doing with their lives. Now, there are those few that, that do know. So the answer is, is similar and, and different for each group. But um, for the ones who don't know, music is, is simply another expression of life, of what is around us. I think music is a living form of magic. That's one thing I like to talk about to some of my newer students, because everything is resonance. We think about it. I was just um, reading another one of my interests is, is physics. And I was reading about the fifth state of matter that has been sort of discovered not too long ago. So, and what I found very interesting is this fifth state of matter is achieved not with heat, not with like high temperatures, but actually by approaching near absolute zero. Something very strange happens to the particles. They, they become waves almost. They begin to act like wave functions, which I, I just found very fascinating. And I'll have to do some thinking about that. So, I mean, like, if you think about that, that means fundamentally everything in the universe is, is waves, they're, they're resonance, and that's what sound is. So there's something just magically beautiful about sound and music. What that means to different people, it's, it's, it's unique. So the biggest thing is to let go 
of, again, any need to be anything, especially if you're studying music, right? It's to take in the experience of it, to enjoy it, the whole process of it. You know, the, from the very beginning when you're learning the first notes or familiarizing yourself with the work to when you're polishing it, but just to make that entire process enjoyable. And I think the key to that is to take away expectations. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing your life and your stories with us. And especially thank you for the depth of your sincerity and commitment that you obviously have to music and to your students. No, I have really enjoyed getting to know you better in this conversation, and I'm sure it will be a delight to our listeners to hear your thoughts about life, about music, and about teaching. So with that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students.